3: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: It's your turn, Betty. Uh, I can't concentrate. Here come the excuses. (laughs) Every time that breeze starts up, I get a wave of something awful.
4: What are you talking about?
2: Don't you smell that?
4: Oh, wow. I do know.
2: Oh, My word, Betty, you're right. What is that? Uh, it's, It's like an animal that's died twice. It's putrid. That's it, girls. I'm calling the groundskeeper. Mr. Bliss, hello. It's Gladys Moore.
1: Hello, Gladys. What can I do for you?
2: Well, I have some girls over for a game of bridge, and we're outside on the deck, and it smells something awful out here.
0: What's it smell like?
2: Oh, I don't know. Like picnic meat left out too long in the sun?
0: I see.
5: Probably just a dead coon.
2: Well, then, it better be a coon the size of a Cadillac, because this is a big smell, Mr. Bliss. My friends are getting ready to quit the game early and head home. They're so disgusted. Russell and I pay top dollar for your upkeep, and it's sorely lacking today.
1: All right, all right, Mrs. Moore. I'll come check it out.
2: Thank you, and please let me know what you find.
1: All right, I will. Hey, Steve! Yeah? I need you for a sec. Gotta check out a strange smell near the Moore's cabin. Okay, boss. You smell that?
6: Pretty rough, I'd say. Where's it coming from?
1: Up that road, by the Robisons.
6: They call you about it?
1: No, Mrs. Moore did, but it's definitely coming from their cabin, not hers.
6: Damn, that's bad. Richard? Shirley? You in there? They're not home, huh?
1: That's strange. You see anyone inside?
6: Uh, The sun's bright, money. I can't see much through the window.
1: What is that? Underneath that blanket, right behind the door. Can you tell?
6: Jeez, Monty, that's a body!
1: Uh, I think. I think there's another one in the hall. What do we do?
6: Call them! Call the cops!
3: On the evening of June 25th, 1968, the entire Robison family was murdered in their summer cabin on Lake Michigan.
2: But it wasn't until 27 days later that their bodies were discovered in the middle of the day by the groundskeeper Chauncey Bliss, a.k.a. Money, and his carpenter aide Steve Shenaniket.
3: By that point, the stench of death had permeated the floors and walls, eventually the cabin would have to be destroyed.
2: But even the destruction of the crime scene wouldn't erase the horrible memory that would mar the quaint town of Goodheart forever.
3: This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the Robison family murders. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
2: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Now, back to the chilling tale of the Robison family murders, which remains one of the largest unsolved mass murders in Michigan history.
3: The year was 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy had just been assassinated. Vietnam protests were rampant across the nation. The Beatles were gearing up for their white album recording sessions.
2: And all over the country, consumerism was on the rise. The concept of keeping up with the Joneses drove men to work harder and provide more and more for their households.
3: But it was also a time centered on family values. Think the wonder years. And because of this, it was fairly common for middle-class families to pile into their station wagons for a good old-fashioned summer vacation.
2: Such was the case for the Robisons, an all-American, well-to-do Lutheran family of six.
3: Every summer, they drove 275 miles from their home in Lathrop Village, a suburb of Detroit, to the town of Goodhart.
0: Come on,
1: man! I want to listen to Led Zeppelin.
0: We all have to agree on the tunes, Gary. You know the rules.
2: Patsy Cline, then? Ugh,
0: no, Mom. Then it's nothing.
2: I'm hungry. We'll stop for a snack soon, sweetie. Are we there yet?
0: Few more hours, buddy. Just hold your horses. Why don't you kids play the license plate game?
2: Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> You you all right hon? You seem a little on edge.
0: You know me, long drives with the kids. Not exactly a calming experience.
2: I know, but you've been like this for a while now. Is is everything all right at work?
0: I don't want to talk about work.
2: But but Dick, I
0: said I don't want to talk about work. <laughs> what letter are you guys on? D.
3: Okay, D. Let's see. So who were the Robisons? And how is it possible they would meet such an untimely end?
2: Well, first there was the patriarch, Richard Robison, age 42. He ran an ad agency called R.C. Robison and Associates. He also published an arts and culture magazine named Empresario.
3: His wife, Shirley, was 40 years old and a stay-at-home mom. Their eldest son, Richard Jr., was 19 and a student at Eastern Michigan University. He was also slated to inherit and run his father's business.
2: Richard and Shirley had two other sons, Gary, age 16, and Randall, age 12. Their only daughter was seven-year-old
3: Susan. So, on June 16, 1968, the Robisons embarked on their first leg of their journey. They were to spend three weeks at the cabin, then continue on to Florida and Kentucky to apparently check out some real estate property.
2: Sadly, their first destination would be their last. After the approximately six-hour drive to Goodhart, the Robisons arrived at their remote retreat known as Somerset.
3: The cabin was built under a bluff, about 100 feet from Lake Michigan. It was part of a development community called Blisswood, which was nestled deep in the woods, far from civilization.
2: Once at Somerset, the Robisons began to unwind and start what they believed would be a safe and relaxing family vacation.
3: Goodheart was a quiet town, full of simple pleasures and nature-bound activities. The Robisons would spend their summers chasing butterflies, roasting marshmallows, enjoying lazy mornings, and late-night campfires.
2: And of course, there was the lake. Come on, Gary! Wait for me! Susie, did you put on your sunscreen?
0: She'll be all right, hon.
2: I guess. Would you like some lemonade?
0: I'd love some. It's hotter this summer, isn't it?
2: Maybe a tad. How's your stock doing?
0: The same, I suppose.
2: Your mind somewhere else, hon?
0: Yeah. It's out on that lake. What? Oh, come on.
2: Dick! (laughs) Mom! Dad! Inside the cabin, card games and books were the main attractions. There wasn't a lot to do in Goodheart, and that was the point. Checking out from the demands and pressures of city living.
3: So no one, not a single living soul in or visiting Goodheart, could have imagined the horror that would befall the coastal community.
2: And that included the town's law enforcement.
1: Uh, this is Chauncey Bliss from Goodheart.
5: Hey there, Mr. Bliss. Everything alright?
1: Uh, I'm afraid not. It's one of the cabins. The Robisons, you see? Yes? I think something happened to them. Steve and I found some bodies. What? We can only see two, but I think there are more.
5: Dear God. Is this for real?
1: I ain't one to joke about life and death, sir.
5: I, I don't know what to do. Uh, Sh- Sheriff Zink's not here.
1: He
3: ain't?
5: He's in Yellowstone on vacation. We'll have to call the undersheriff.
3: Who's that? The undersheriff of Emmett County was Clifford Fossmore, age 35, and a Korean War vet.
2: Because this was a quiet town, crime was a rarity. If it did occur, it was usually underage drinking or domestic disturbances, or even the occasional drug deal. But murder? That was a word incongruous with the picturesque town.
3: So, when the call came in, ten men rushed to the scene like a small army to the battlefront.
2: The men included Under Sheriff Fossmore, various deputies from Emmett and nearby counties, state troopers, a reporter, and Emmett County Prosecutor Richard Smith.
3: Chauncey Bliss, who also went by Monty, showed them to the cabin at 3.30 in the afternoon on July 22, 1968. When the men entered, it
2: was as if they were crossing into another realm.
3: Even though it was daytime, the thousands of buzzing flies feeding off the bodies created a grotesque darkness.
2: The only light at first was the intermittent flash of the reporter's camera. A reporter was allowed
3: inside because this was big news for the town. The biggest. The bodies had spent nearly a month decomposing.
2: The combination of the active furnace and the summer heat desecrated the corpses beyond recognition.
3: The smell was so bad, the men had to leave until they could procure some gas masks. Then, they went back inside.
2: They found the mother Shirley's body first, under a blanket near the door. She was naked from the waist down, and in such a position that she may have been sexually assaulted.
3: Richard's body was piled in the hallway with Susan and Randall's bodies of the two teenage sons, Richard Jr. and Gary, were discovered in a bedroom.
2: Each family member had been shot in the head, but little Susan, it appeared, had also been bludgeoned with a hammer.
3: That hammer was found by Under-Sheriff Fossmore. Instead of taking the proper precautions for handling evidence, he grabbed a paper towel and picked up the hammer, an act which most likely wiped the handle clean of any fingerprints. He held it up and... The reporter snapped a photo.
2: What was Fossmore thinking?
3: Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was too much in shock.
2: We could also blame his lack of experience dealing with a murder case.
3: And we can't forget that this was the 1960s, and police protocols were not as advanced as they are now.
2: But fingerprinting did exist at the time, which makes me wonder why he hadn't been more careful.
3: Yes, and sadly... It may have been a mistake which cost them the case.
5: Six bodies. That's right.
1: Oh, God.
4: That's all of them. Come again? The whole family. Anything like this ever happened before?
6: Not even close. The last homicide was in 1958.
5: Ackenbach, right?
6: That would be the one.
5: Who was that? This wacko who offed his mom, then wrapped her up in a carpet?
6: That was nothing compared to this. Absolutely nothing.
3: Prosecutor Smith was the first to offer a quote to the press regarding the mass homicide. It's taken verbatim from historical account, namely from Marty Link's book, When Evil Came to Goodhart*.
6: We don't know anything. We don't know how it was done, why it was done, or for sure exactly when it was done. And we certainly don't know who did it. All we know is it was done.
3: Another official told a local reporter the trail is as cold as the winters in northern Michigan.
2: Wow, that must have really frustrated the residents of Goodhart.
3: That's an understatement. The homicide turned the town upside down. But the fact that there were no leads at this point was devastating. This threw the residents of Goodhart and other nearby counties into a state of fear and anxiety.
2: No suspect in custody meant the killer was on the loose, and anyone could be next.
3: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story.
2: Without any eyewitnesses, investigators had to put the pieces together themselves. In terms of how the murder went down, this was their eventual theory.
4: Mr. Robison was probably relaxing in that chair with his son Randall by his side. Mrs. Robison was in the armchair nearby. Richard Jr. and Gary were at the kitchen table playing double solitaire. And Susan was probably on the living room floor
3: near her parents playing with her doll. How authorities came to these specific conclusions is unclear.
5: The killer, coming up from the woods, raised a 22 caliber rifle and fired through a window near the front door, hitting Richard Sr. twice in the chest.
4: The killer then entered and used a 25 caliber handgun to shoot Shirley, then Randall, and then Susan as she ran for cover.
5: The older boys bolted for a back bedroom. They may have been going for a rifle we found stored in the closet, but they were gunned down before they could reach it.
4: Before fleeing... The killer bludgeoned Susan with a hammer and shot everyone once more with the handgun.
5: The killer then locked the doors and covered the bullet holes in the window with cardboard. He didn't even
3: turn off the heater. It kept on running. So it all started with a single shot fired through a window.
2: Yes, from some distance away, which suggested the killer had good aim, which could mean some form of gun training. What else? There was a note left outside the cabinet that said, We'll be back and it was signed Robison.
3: Was the handwriting ever examined?
2: Well, it seems so, but nothing concrete or helpful ever came from it. However, a theory developed later that the killer wrote the note to deter anyone from coming to check on the Robisons. The note may have been the killer's attempt to buy more time for his escape and to damage evidence at the crime scene.
3: Right. Well, investigators say that the first 48 hours are the most crucial in terms of collecting usable evidence and finding the perpetrator. If there is no real lead or suspect within that time frame, the chances of finding the criminal are cut in half. Consider the chances for this case. The crime scene had been there for almost a month in the heat with all the windows closed.
2: Which means finding the Robison family killer would be extremely difficult. And even unlikely.
3: Right, decomposed bodies and damaged crime scene means less evidence. Less evidence means fewer leads.
2: What's also unclear about the crime scene is why some valuables were taken and others were not. Shirley's $9,000 diamond ring and a pearl necklace, along with Richard's Omega watch and $700 in cash, had been stolen. But expensive electronics, like cameras, and even several wallets, were left behind.
3: Well, the killer could have been in a hurry, grabbed the expensive items in closest proximity, whatever the victims were wearing.
2: True. But it does beg the question, was it purely a robbery?
3: Well, that was part of the initial theory, which revolved around a lone drifter or escaped mental patient who stumbled on the cabin went on a shooting spree, and fled with some valuables.
2: And here's why authorities pursued this theory from the get-go. Just 90 miles from Goodhart was the Traverse City State Hospital. In the late 1800s, when it was created, it was known as the Northern Michigan Asylum for the Insane.
3: With such a facility nearby, authorities chose the madman angle and began an intensive investigation into a myriad of mental hospital patients, hitchhikers, escapees, and drifters. This
2: included a hotel busboy who had been in a mental institution, a 29-year-old man who had been in and out of Traverse City leading up to the crime, and another patient who was described as having red kinky hair and one eye with a constant twitch.
3: A lot of these fruitless leads were actually tips from outside sources. A mother even called in saying she believed her two violent sons could have done it.
2: Well, it sounds like the cops opened up the floodgates to suspicion and bias against those who had a history of mental illness or a checkered past.
3: That's exactly what happened.
2: This theory didn't last very long, however. All of the people investigated provided alibis. Then, in October, Over three months after the discovery of the bodies, authorities came forth with a new statement.
3: It was given by Emmett County Sheriff Richard Zink, the man who had been in Yellowstone when the homicide was first reported.
0: We now believe the killer was familiar with the cabin, that he knew the family, and they knew him.
2: It's unclear exactly how they came to this conclusion, but with this new development came a possible suspect.
3: And it was groundskeeper Chauncey Bliss.
2: Chauncey Bliss, 57 at the time, had developed the community of Blisswood with his father, also named Chauncey, in the 1950s. They built the cabins, including the
3: one the Robisons owned. The design of these cabins, which features a stone foundation topped with lacquered logs, is known throughout the area as the Bliss Home. So
2: Chauncey was a bit of a local celebrity then?
3: You could say that, at least when it came to architecture. But his lasting celebrity was actually born from the investigation, when two young state police detectives from Detroit came to town.
2: They were big city cops assigned to the case. At the time, Lloyd Stearns and John Fliss didn't know the half of what they were getting into.
3: This was an investigation that would eventually consume them. You
6: like the country, John?
4: Not really. It's too quiet. Not anymore. Yeah, that's the problem. It's so used to being quiet that when something like this happens, all hell breaks loose. This thing happens in Detroit. And it does. Well, yeah, but the city doesn't care. It keeps on
6: moving. But here, everything just stops. I like the country. I like getting away from it all. I like small-town diner food. The hospitality. Hell, I even like the mosquitoes. Reminds me of camping with my pops.
4: Mosquitoes can kiss my ass. As for the hospitality, don't know how much we're going to get unless we
6: solve this thing.
4: No pressure, Lloyd.
6: Right. We're almost at Goodhart. You want to stop for a bite first? Sure. We got to
4: call it an early night anyway. Interviews start tomorrow. And
2: when the interviews did start, Chauncey Bliss, the current person of interest, was on everyone's minds. All I can say is... He is a strange man, sometimes frightening. Can you be more specific? Well, I am a God-fearing woman, as you can tell by this crucifix around my neck, devoted to the Lord and His Son Jesus Christ. That seems to be the norm around here, but Monty Bliss, that man talks to spirits. What do you mean? Just like I said it. He tries to communicate with the dead. In my book, that's the definition of frightening.
5: He's alright. A little weird, but every town has one of that kind. He never harmed anyone. Just likes to drive late at night. Take his old truck back and forth the country roads. He just drives? That's right.
4: It's terrible, really. I mean,
2: he's been through a lot.
6: You mean the death of his son?
2: Yeah. Only happened back in June.
3: You happen to know the exact date?
2: Uh, I don't know when it happened, but I think they buried him on June 25th.
3: If you'll recall, June 25th was the night the Robisons were killed.
2: Bliss's 18-year-old son, Norman, had died in a motorcycle accident a few days earlier.
3: In fact, Richard Robison had visited Chauncey to pay his respects on June 24th. He gave Chauncey's wife Dorothy $20 to purchase some flowers, and apologized that he and his family could not attend the funeral.
2: Some residents have remarked that they thought Chauncey took offense at Richard's gesture and, in his mind, blamed the Robisons for his son's death.
3: That doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: Yes, but the man was grieving.
3: That's true, and people are capable of extreme actions when in the midst of grief. People have been known to have emotional, psychological, and even physical reactions like erratic mood swings and feelings that they are losing their minds.
2: Are you suggesting Chauncey could have wiped out the entire Robinson family because he was mourning the loss of his son?
3: I'm calling attention to the fact that it was a theory that authorities explored at one point.
2: I see. Like grieving father displaces blame for son's death and kills a family in a maniacal rage.
3: Mm, Something along those lines.
2: Well, it's not completely implausible.
3: Yes. And Chauncey's daughter even alluded to her father's mental condition years later.
2: She told reporters that he had never been
3: properly treated for his psychosis, which caused him to live in a dream world. Well, could the loss of his son have caused him to have a mental breakdown? Or was he crazy before the accident?
2: Well, residents did talk about his strange actions. And these have been going on for years
3: before he lost his son. Well, although Chauncey was considered a possible suspect, it didn't really lead to anything conclusive.
2: So the dynamic duo of Stearns and Fliss, the two detectives from Detroit, turned their focus on a new man.
3: His name was Joe Scalaro, and he was Richard Robison's closest business associate.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024
1: Fiat 500e. Add something elettrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC.
3: And now, back to unsolved murders.
2: Joseph Raymond Scalaro III was a bookish, six foot tall, 35 year old ad executive who was known for his thick rimmed glasses. He began working for Richard's advertising and publishing business in 1965.
3: Prior to that, he had studied business and marketing at Harvard University and had a great deal of sales experience.
2: According to associates, Richard had considered Joe to be indispensable and viewed him as a friend as well as a colleague.
3: Joe worked closely with Richard, who even gave him access to the company account.
2: Following the murder... Investigators had an audit performed on the company's finances. They discovered that almost $60,000 had disappeared from the account a couple of months before the Robisons
3: were killed. Richard had become aware of this mysterious shortage the day of his death. He had spoken to a bank official who informed him of the missing funds.
2: He was irate when he called his ad agency from the Blisswood cabin.
0: Glenda, I need to speak with Joe immediately.
1: Oh, hi, Mr. Robinson. On another call.
0: Tell him to get off.
1: Is everything alright?
0: Damn it, Glenda. I hired you to do what I ask, not inquire incessantly.
1: I'm sorry, sir. I'll get him right away.
0: <sighs> Dick? What in God's name is going on? What do you mean? I just spoke with a woman from the bank who said the account was short $60,000. Can you explain this? I can't. Are you sure? Yes. I want to know what happened to
1: it. Honestly, Dick, I couldn't tell you. I'm as surprised as you are. Let me make some calls yeah, you do that.
0: I'm not playing around here.
1: I understand. I'll let you know what I find out. It has to be an error.
3: Just try and take it easy. Have you been enjoying the lake, Dick? Robinson was furious when he ended the call with Joe, who then left the office immediately.
2: Mr. Scalaro?
3: Cancel all my meetings today.
2: Okay. But where are you going? But it wasn't just the missing money and the phone call that
3: painted Joe Scalaro as the person of interest. There was more. When Stearns and Fliss looked into his background, they discovered he had served as a sharpshooter in the military.
2: Which would mean he knew his way around a rifle and had experience shooting targets from far distances.
3: Remember the first bullet fired through the window from the woods? Just saying.
2: Same train of thought as the investigators, they were very suspicious of Scalaro. Oh, well,
3: he hadn't just been in the military. He had trained as a Morse code intercept operator and worked in Japan doing cryptology. He and his unit were tasked with decoding Cold War communist messages. Scalaro and his fellow men were known in the armed forces as clandestine warriors.
2: This, compounded with his sharp shooting training and the missing money, caused Stearns and Fliss to zero in on Scalaro.
3: He
6: has motive. The money? Exactly. Thousands of dollars just don't vanish into thin air. Let's say Scalaro stole the money. Maybe out of desperation, or maybe just out of pure American greed. His boss finds out and Scalaro is terrified. So he does the one thing he thinks will solve his problem. He drives up to
4: Goodheart, stakes out the cabin from the woods, and fires a bullet into Robison. And his entire family.
6: A military man would only take that shot if he knew he could make it. A military man would
4: also know that in order to better your odds, you'd take out the biggest threat first. The man of the
6: house. Then you go for the others, until every threat is eliminated. The killer fired one shot into each of the victim's skulls before he left, just to make sure he left none alive.
4: Wouldn't want to chance a pesky witness.
6: Leave no survivors. Yep. You think we have enough to bring him in?
4: We have enough for a simple conversation. How simple it stays, well, that's anyone's guess.
2: All right, let's go see him.
3: This was the first hot lead in a while.
2: Stearns and Fliss must have been energized with the possibility of an arrest.
3: When we interviewed Mr.
4: Robison's secretary, she told us that you left seconds after your call with him, about 10.30
1: a.m., is that correct? Yes, that's right. I went straight to a plumbing convention at Cobo Hall.
6: But you canceled all your appointments for the day. Why would you have made appointments in the first place if you had a convention to go to?
1: I wasn't sure I was going to go. Then, after I spoke with Dick, I decided that it was best to solidify our businesses with various clients. Especially after the call. What clients? Delta Fawcett, for one. Did you speak with anyone while you were there? As a matter of fact, I did. A couple of representatives from Delta and Bob Laidlaw from Fearless. Okay. What did you do next? From the convention, I walked to the Salamander Bar at the Train Hotel. I had two drinks and then went shopping before driving home. It was raining, so on my way back, I stopped by Dick's house. Why did you do that? I knew the family was away and I wanted to make sure that there wasn't any flooding. Was there? Some water had leaked in the basement. I cleaned it up. Then what? I got home about 11 at night, kissed my wife and son, and went to bed.
3: After the interview, Stearns and Fliss tracked down Bob Laidlaw from Peerless. The man Scolaro said he spoke with the last day of the convention, June 25th, the day the Robisons were murdered.
2: Laidlaw admitted that he had spoken with Scalaro, but he couldn't remember which day of the convention. It was a three-day event.
3: So, Stearns and Fliss sought out representatives from Delta Faucet. Uh, sure, I saw
0: Mr. Scolaro at the convention. What day? It had to be the second day, uh, June 24th. You sure? Yeah, it was definitely the 24th.
2: So Scalaro did make an appearance, except not on the day that he claimed, which meant he had no real alibi for the day and the night of the murder.
3: No alibi is a big red flag.
2: After Scalaro left his offices in the morning, there were 10 or 11 hours that were basically unaccounted for.
3: The town of Goodheart is 275 miles away from Lathrop Village, well, that would take about six hours to drive.
2: That means Scalaro could have driven straight to the cabin, committed the murder, and made it back home very late that same evening.
3: That doesn't look good.
2: But at this point, the evidence was circumstantial, and it wasn't enough.
3: That was about to change.
2: Besides shell casings found at the crime scene, which would definitely come up later there was a bloody footprint left by the killer.
3: When authorities first reported to the crime scene, this was considered a valuable piece of evidence. So, the cops cut out the square floor containing the bloody print.
2: This piece of the puzzle came up when Stearns and Fliss set their sights on Scalaro. Mr. Scalaro, we have a warrant to
6: search
1: the premises. Uh, Okay. Come in, I guess.
2: The search wasn't as fruitful as expected. That is, until...
4: Whoa. Check out this closet. Can you say obsessive-compulsive? That's really organized. He's got two of everything. Look at this. Same blue tie. Same colored shirt. Same leather belt. Weird, but not incriminating. Yeah. How about you? Find anything useful? No, just... Nice brand. I've never owned a pair of boots that expensive. You think we chose the wrong line of work? Take a look at this print. The print referred to a photo of the bloody footprint left at the crime scene. I'll be damned. You think it could be a match? That is a match. We'll
3: need the crime lab to confirm it. Let's bag it up. The pair of boots found at Scolaro's house did match the bloody footprint collected from the crime scene.
5: It's a match. Did I tell you? But these weren't at the crime scene. What are you talking about? These boots are brand new. No traces of blood, dirt, or debris. This guy is detail-oriented. Military-trained. He could have cleaned them. Ah, uh, There's no way. There would be something. Wait.
6: You're right. He's clean and he's organized. And he buys two of everything. What are you saying? Uh, this, this could be his second pair. He could have worn those exact boots during the murder. Then trashed them. Knowing full well he had a Identical pair at home. A
3: backup pair. And that became one of the theories that the investigators held on to. The bookish, buttoned up ad man was clean, organized, meticulous, and had a habit of buying two of everything. The lone pair of brand new boots was missing its double which they believed was long gone, having trudged through dirt and leaves, and finally, the blood of the Robison clan.
2: And so it was one more detail authorities added to the deck stacked against Scalaro.
3: But the case was far from over. In fact, authorities still didn't have the murder weapons.
2: That's right, we have much more to explore. The massive gun hunt that ensued, the discovery of new evidence.
3: As well as a couple surprising leads, one including a mysterious contact of Richard's and a suspect known as the co-ed killer.
2: Not to mention another
3: shocking death. Joe Scalaro may seem like the likely suspect, but if we can learn anything about unsolved murders, it's what Detective Stern said about the twists in the Robison case.
6: What's on the surface isn't always what you hang your head on.
2: Isn't that the truth? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Robison family murders.
3: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: If we live till next time.
3: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and written by Jessica Mollo. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes By Alphabetical Order, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart. Harris Markson, Nicholas Masu, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, Vanessa Richardson, and Brooklyn Sarver.